Welcome to Season 9 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Are you passionate about leadership education? Do you want to expand your resource toolbox with practical teaching, learning, and program design strategies? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Before we get into this episode, Dan and I are calling out all of you leadership educators. Are you struggling to spice up your learning activities? Do you need somebody to bounce your ideas off of that has no stakes in the game? Meaning they're not your students, they're not your faculty peers, they're not your dean? Well, connect with us for expert guidance on creating engaging and inclusive classroom learning environments. Are you an academic leader seeking a program reviewer? Dan has availability this semester and would love to help you elevate your approach with customized feedback on your program. You can reach out to both of us through LinkedIn today. Season 9 of the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Dan Jenkins, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And I am Lauren Bullock, an Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And we're excited to continue our season. We started in the fall with our Season 9, and normally we'd switch to Season 10 in the spring, but we found that there was so much more to talk about, we continued with that topic. We're focused on generative learning for leadership educators. Um, This is an approach to leadership development and education that focuses on cultivating generative thinking and behaviors in leaders. Generative thinking is the ability to create new possibilities, think systemically, and generate innovative solutions to complex problems. It involves shifting from a reactive or problem-solving mindset to a proactive and creative mindset. Yeah, and within the context of leadership education, you know, we see this uh, generative learning or generative leadership education uh, aiming to develop leaders who might navigate uncertainty. We're doing that all the time. We are inspiring collaboration and uh, hopefully influencing and creating positive change and uh, helping others uh, do so in their organizations and communities. And so as we think about generative leadership education, it might involve experiential learning, reflection, uh, and the development of skills like systems thinking, adaptive leadership, and emotional intelligence. Uh, We know our audience is familiar with a lot of those concepts. And so our our aim this season is to uh, have as many guests on as possible to share with us uh, how they're thinking about some of those things and doing post-pandemic. So we've invited leadership educators, uh, faculty, and other disciplines who may have won awards for their teaching uh, and scholars and community leaders uh, to talk about things like uh, artificial intelligence, ethics, social phenomena, and how they're dealing with disruptions and adaptive challenges in their places and spaces. And that might lead to things like, how do we facilitate conversations that are really, really tough that are causing or affecting us in all these types of contexts and communities and environments that we find ourselves in and where we're trying to facilitate that positive change with all those things going on around us. And so we're uh, broadly asking this question, how are we processing like what's happening around us and how that is affecting our classrooms and our campuses as we're trying to develop curriculum, teach, evaluate leadership learning, work with students, uh, and build community. We're very fortunate today to have Riaz Patel, a two-time Emmy-nominated and an NAACP Image Award-nominated executive producer and director. He's someone that's not only made waves in Hollywood, but he has dedicated himself to transformative work in fostering open dialogue, empathy, and leadership on college campuses. This is something we're all striving to do, so it's wonderful to hear a different perspective, which we'll do today. He has received a special commendation from the City of Los Angeles for his work with survivors of domestic violence, and so we're thrilled to dive into his experiences, hear insights, and just listen to some of the impactful work that he's been doing. Welcome, Riaz, to our show. Hi there. Good morning. Yeah, we're so excited to have you. And uh, I want to say, firstly, I'm grateful to our shared contact, Sheldon Cheshire, who uh, was a participant in the 2019 International Leadership Association's uh, Leadership Education Academy that I I co-chaired and had the uh, privilege uh, to have been one of the facilitators. And uh, Sheldon spoke so highly of your work at his institution there at at Weber State University. Uh, 
where you've not only visited his campus multiple times, but you've also moderated conversations like four chairs conversations, you know, taking on controversial topics like the gun control debate. I'd love if you could share a little bit more about some of these experiences to get us started, how they you know, relate to fostering things like open dialogue and leadership on campuses, and then provide some of your insights into like this approach. Uh, how do you, you're ensuring diverse perspectives are being heard and, and, and respected and, and maybe, you know, what kind of led you into that work? Uh, so I, um, my, my, my background is, is um, psychology. So I studied at University of Pennsylvania, um, did research with some of the greatest minds in, in psychology, Dr. Warren Seligman, Dr. Henry Gleitman, and, um, and was really on my way to medical school to become a psychiatrist, um, really believed in transformation and the idea of being able to shift people's perspectives, specifically when they get stuck in a, in a perspective that's not helpful to them. Um, and at the time was really struggling with the idea of being gay. It was a very different era and um, and really, really struggling. Like, well, why am I here? This this burden of shame I don't think I can carry. And ended up during finals sitting in my parents' living room and but I was by myself and a movie came on the television um, and it was an old uh, Merchant Ivory film, an art house film about a gay love story set in Edwardian England. And that was the first time I was 19 years old. It was the first time it had ever occurred to me that gay love could be as beautiful as any other love story. It had never, ever occurred to me. And that two hours shifted my entire life. And I remember thinking that medium is incredibly powerful because it was not engaging me in a conversation of just information. It was creating an emotional state. And so that's what changed my career and went into entertainment. And all of my shows have been transformative that a, a woman who's hated her body for 20 years will come on one of my shows or a family that's about to fall apart. And I have two to three days to create these immersive experiences, social experiments, if you will, to shift the way they think and feel about the lives. And, and not just for camera, permanently. And so around 2016, when people, I started seeing people say, um, if you think this way, uh, unfriend me, I don't want to be friends with you. And I was like, uh-oh, like, if you don't talk, there is no other way to humanize each other that through my life, whether it was the gay thing or being Muslim or being an immigrant or being from Pakistan, the only way I could ever humanize myself and create a shift in people's perspective is through conversation. You know, it's, that's what higher education was for me is those, those amazing conversations that were, and I have a knee-jerk reaction to the word difficult because a lot of people keep saying difficult conversations. I think people get primed to think this is going to be go badly. And I think really interesting conversations are the most energizing thing in the world. And so how could I create a space where people could do that? Um, and so I started bringing people together from 2016. I would bring friends who stopped talking. I would bring neighbors. I would bring, you know, 10 people, 20 people, 40 people. I did it in rural Alaska. I did it in Texas, in New York, in DC. And I was like, why are people not seeing each other? That they're talking past each other. And it was almost like we had these people in the room, but there were eight people in the room, but 17,000 opinions. And if we discussed, for example, gun control, and even the word control is provocative to people on the right, but, you know, the gun debate, you would have all these opinions and Mitch McConnell was in the room and Nancy Pelosi. And I'm like, but they're not here. They're not actually in the room. Well, but but Abby's here. This is Abby. She's a mom. Anyone see Abby? But Abby's side did this and present by it. And I was like, but that has nothing to do with Abby. She's right. Anyone see her? And it was this odd thing that people were not seeing each other. And that began this journey of six, seven years now of how could I create connection that would allow people to have the conversations in a way that was not just collaborative, but enjoyable. And that's what entertainment does, is that entertainment creates an emotional state and it's, it's more lean back than lean forward. And so after years and years, we realized the secret of connection is in the introduction that how you introduce people to each other will set up how they see each other. And we found that if you could bring strangers together, or people who didn't know each other well, and introduce them in the right way, they had a much better chance of shifting each other's perspective than if you were to engage your cousin in the same debate. Because so much of that conversation between your cousin has nothing to do with the topic, it has to do with the relationship. And so really this idea of bringing together strangers and connecting them through this experience called Connect Effect, is a, we call it step zero that it, it primes people in a way to really drop into this deeply connected state, that the connection leads to conversation, and that conversation is the foundation of community, which is the thing we all want. So that is the connect effect, connection, conversation, community. And so it really is this 
as entertaining as it can be, because entertainment's one of the spaces, one of the only spaces that people relinquish their ego, that you don't go into a movie theater and you don't go into a play with your, your fists up ready to fight, you surrender to the experience. And I think that surrendering is very key to getting people to connect. Um, and so it's just been a seven year journey of perfecting every second, every minute of this, um, this connect effect. So, wow, there's, there's so much to, to discuss in, in that just opening statement. And, and the, I, have, I have a couple of questions, but the, the first one um, centers on the, the key is how you introduce people. Hmm. So in my a class I teach, it's called Leading Diverse Teams. One semester, I had a really large class and I had them do the traditional post on the discussion boards and things about you. And usually I use the diversity wheel, knowing that it's a little dated and that some of the, the terminology needs to be changed. But part of the class becomes critiquing it and kind of talking about how, well, when this came out, this was the state of our society. We've since grown. Research can grow and just kind of priming them for the conversation to critique more. One of the things I did differently was I went through everybody's discussion board and I pulled out one thing that I had in common with them. And so instead of saying, you know, I'm, I'm teaching at this university, I've taught here, I went here, I shared the things I knew that they listed. For example, someone talked about loving going to the beach. And I'm like, well, I was born down the street from the beach. The end of my block was the beach and lived there for many years. And so I share all of these things that normally I would not share in my classroom introductions. But to your point, the key is how you introduce yourself. I wanted them to see something in common with me instead of defaulting to visibly what they see or perceive um, or hearing almost a disconnected explanation of myself, all these things that they didn't really care about. Yeah. They cared more about some of these other things. So I, I didn't do it. It wasn't like I read it and did it intentionally. It was kind of like, oh, I had this thought, but now that you're saying like the key is introduction, it makes so much sense. So going to your example of cousins, right? Your cousins, they're, they're born. Like I have cousins who I didn't know their government name until I was like in my thirties <laughs> their parent passed away and I saw their name and I'm like, well, who is this part? Like, who is this person? Like this? No, it should be, you know? And, and so to your point, you're never really like introduced to them. They yeah. just show up and you start, you know, act natural. And just start looking around them. Um, but that explains why some of the conversations you can't have because of how you're connected. Um, so that was my kind of comment. But then more of a, an explanatory question for or question for our audience is, can you explain like the entertainment and shows piece? So you referred to entertainment. Mm -hmm. And can you just explain a little bit of that? At, we'll get into more, but can you just explain that for our audience? Sure. And I think, um, you know, entertainment, when I'm doing it for networks, like, you know, MTV or, or Lifetime or anything, that's very, very clear. My job is to get an audience. Um, that audience is measured. How many people stayed? How many people watched it? I think in this sort of real world experiential version, it is trying to make the barrier for entry as easy as possible. That I think, and I just got back from a week in Minnesota um, where I did, we did Connect Effect six times over three days. And I was a guest lecturer in about 20 classes. There is such, a, and really good teachers do this anyway. You know, really good instructors do this, that it's dynamic, that it doesn't feel burdensome. It doesn't feel just like a passive experience. You know, we know those professors whose classes we went to and we're like, okay, just lean back. He's going to go on a monologue for an hour. And the ones who create this dynamic, immersive experience. And so when I use entertainment in that sense, it is, it's designed to be enjoyable. You know, I think, again, I have, I, I know that so many conversations are difficult, but I think that when they're framed as we need to have difficult conversations, it becomes, oh my God, there's one more thing that I'm going to have to now gear up to do. And we've been doing that, talking about difficult conversations for years and years. And I think there's a burnout rate there. And so when I really try to do this as a co-curricular experience outside of the classroom itself is how can it be as enjoyable as possible? So the actual experience, you know, you walk in, music is thumping, lights are dimmed, you know you're not in a regular lecture, it's not going to be deliberative debate. And then they go through this experience that is designed to be theatrical. Um, half the experience is in the real world, we call it, which is the people in the room, and half is in the screen world, because that's how we live our lives. We live our lives between these two worlds. And so the stuff that's on the screen is incredibly robust, the media, incredibly dynamic, um, very immersive, the music, the sound, the sound mix. And so that is to create an emotional state. Great art does that. It creates an emotional state. It changes the way you think, 
but it doesn't do it by just presenting you information. It's the way it's presented. And so that I lean into the idea of something that is immersive, something that is allows them to enjoy themselves, that they actually do find it fun, you know, that they go through it and it's designed to entertain. So it doesn't feel like it's hard work. And when they find that it's fun, again, the ego relinquishes. One of the great tragedies of our era is that even though we're all living in an information age, connection is not remotely information-based. That all of the information, what we tend to do when we want to connect is we exchange information. Look at this article, see this post, read this tweet, read this post about this post. And it all gets processed by the brain and the ego. And a lot of it doesn't permeate. It just stays up in that brain and ego where we're processing the information, which is why we often want to be right. Because my information is better than your information. When you're in an immersive entertaining space, it permeates. That I always say the thing that I'm trying to do is I don't want it to be taught. I want it to be caught. And that's something that comes from an emotional state is that the messaging is felt rather than conveyed through information. And so that's what we're really going for when we develop Connect Effect is that someone would go through it and they would see the world differently. They would think differently, but they enjoyed the process because so much of it feels so daunting to an age of students who have seen a lot of darkness, you know, and, and then darkness continues to come on their screens. That's how the screens work is through attention extraction. The more I show you the world is burning, the more you can't look away, the more ads slip by. And so they're really, there's a burnout rate for darkness. And I think it's one of the reasons why empathy is getting harder is because they're just so frazzled by the constant dark messaging. We go from one tragedy to another. And so trying to make this co-curricular experience enjoyable that they leave and they say, that was actually fun. And I see things differently. That allows them to enjoy the process and not feel that it's something that has to be so heavy and so intense and so much hard work. Well, we know, so to your point, we just went through this pandemic and no matter how you feel about the pandemic, we all were operating in like this stress emergency level for so long. So we don't have the capacity, even though we may want to be empathetic, we just physically, mentally, emotionally just don't have the capacity yet. We're all kind of still acting as if it's business as usual, right? Yeah, that's a... Mm. And so in that space, I feel like the way you're describing it, it's surfacing the, no, these are real things, but also in a space where um, people feel comforted or comfortable and not in a bad way, but just like, like I think about there's so many lessons to be learned and so many great things about music. So if I hear that music, I'm instantly going to think about who it is, what I'm listening to, how does it make me feel? And by the time you start asking questions and sharing information, you know, I may feel like because of some of these other elements, I'm not, I'm paying somewhat, some attention to, I'm going to be like, okay, well, this space, this space feels okay. Like, it feels like I'm not going to be done too much harm and I can share what I'm thinking in a way that truly is heard, respected, or at least I'll have the opportunity to go back and forth. And I think about how many places can we do that? Um, we're engaging with people less and less now, you know, yeah. just because of the restrictions. And so I, I imagine the way you're describing it, it almost feels like a relief. And so so to that point, um, what's the, what are like one or two things you feel like we can do um, to continue? Like if you've come to our campus and you've built this space, like what are the things that we can do as faculty or people who run programs and student affairs to kind of continue some of that? So, so the, uh, the Connect Effect is based on an underlying system. Mm -hmm. um, Forbes wrote an article about it and called it a game changer for those wanting to break down walls and build bridges. The work and the project and the, the system epic itself is the last chapter on a book of leadership that was written by Garan Carucci that came out about a year ago. He literally used this work as the last, last chapter on how to lead authentically. Um, it's called EPIC, E-P-I-C. Um, the first step is almost the most important step is equalization. And when you say, I like to grow up and when you, I grew up near the beach, that is a way of you equalizing yourself. That so many of the ways we introduce ourselves are ego-based. This is my job. I've got two Emmy nominations. I do this. I really, like, that's what we do by nature. And so when you, but it doesn't create equalization. Equalization is on a profound level. This person has the same worth I do. And so when people are talking, you really have to make sure that they're equalized. And, and we do it in Connect Effect by asking a series of questions at the very beginning um, that show the connections that people don't see. Who's a dog person? Who's a cat person? Who likes to dance? Who can cook? Who feels lonely? Who feels like it's hard to talk to people? All these questions are designed to equalize them. 
Also, when you go to, through Connect Effect, you are always seated with strangers. We found that when people came and they sat with groups they know, they were much less likely to connect. So you come into the space at the door, you touch a touch screen. It assigns you one of four colors, you go to those colors. And so even if you walk in with four friends, you're all separated. When everyone is sitting with strangers, it is much more relaxed because you don't feel like there's an in-group and an out-group. Equalization is, is one of the reasons why bridging often doesn't work because secretly we think they're dumb, they're misinformed, and that inequality can be felt and no connection can be made. So equalization is really the first step. And we do it by all those experiences that we have. The thing about the screens is it's always about now. You know, we go from one crisis to another. It's like Hawaii is burning, then there's a submersible submarine with people about to lose oxygen, then that's tragedy, tragedy. It's always now that there's never any time to go back. But the now, the three of us talking on this on this podcast, each of us have lived thousands of days. We were there our first birthday, kindergarten, and that doesn't get brought up a lot because we're always in the, in the power of now. And so a lot of what we do in Connect Effect to Equalize is go back. You know, who was a good naughty child who had, a, who had an imaginary friend. So equalization is really the, the first and most important step. The second is personalization. And when we live in an era of, of curated information, it is why so many conversations about current events go wrong because people are operating from completely different information and not just social media. Google will customize your searches for what you already believe. And so when we try to engage each other with information, it, it's literally like ships passing in the night. The only truth you know is the truth of your own life. And so whenever people talk about current events, I'm like, why does that matter to you? Why did you, why does that matter to you? Because yes, there are people in DC doing this and that's something that's appearing on your screens, but why does that issue matter to you? What did you go through? What did your parents go through? What did you see them go through? That, that, that personalization is really operating from the only truth we can rely on is the truth of our own experiences and lives. And it also opens up the real universal currency of connection, which is human stories. Where do you come from? What, how did you see the world? What was your childhood like? And so equalization, then personalization. The next step is information gathering, that when someone is talking, I find so often I'll ask people, are you anxious start talking to new people? Yes. Why? I don't know what to say. The key is don't think about that. That if you're really listening and you're gathering information about the person, then you're not really worried about what you're going to say next. And I find there's a big difference between people who listen and people who wait to speak. And I find that the people get very anxious about interactions or waiting to speak because they're like, I hope I come up with something funny. And then they're thinking about what to say as they're listening and they can't just do things at once. And so really information gathering, it is incredible how a simple follow-up question will open people up because they're so used to posting at each other in real life. And I watch these conversations from afar and I'm like, you could have posted that. Like someone says something and someone says something and I believe this and I believe this. And I'm like, okay, there was no actual dynamic of collaboration there, which is the final step, collaboration. Um, great conversations are collaborative. Problems get solved through collaboration. That if you think of connection and conversation as a collaboration, it takes the burden off. You don't have to be funny the whole time especially if when someone's talking, you're gathering information and then you're just collaborating. The whole dynamic comes from each of you. It's not one of you having to take the burden of it. And so really framing it as a collaboration takes some of the pressure off of, I've got to be funny, interesting, say the right thing. Um, so epic equalization, personalization, information gathering, collaboration. But I would say 50% of connection is equalization. How can I really understand who you are, You know where you came from? Because I once brought together for the gun debate after a school shooting, I brought together seven Americans from the same community, all very different backgrounds. And I said, okay, you all live in the same community. Um, and we know they don't separate children by political belief when they shoot. So it behooves you all to really work together. You're all scared. They fought for hours, you know, Nancy Pelosi, this, and I was like, wait, none of those people are in the room. None of the people are in the room. And it was a disaster. They literally spent hours just talking past each other. What was interesting is that two women were sitting next to each other. One who was a firearms instructor for the NRA. She works at the NRA. The other was the chapter leader of Moms Demand Action. And one of them called me the next day and said, even though I didn't speak to her, the woman sitting next to me, I liked her and I think she's a good mom. And maybe we could talk again. Albert Morabian said that in all communication, only 7% is the words. 
93% is body language, tone, expression. And we forget that. And that's why the screen doesn't yield connections because we're exchanging information, we're exchanging words and all that other stuff, even a Zoom screen. You can't see the foot tapping. You can't see a lot of the gestures. And so these two women happened to be sitting next to each other. And even though they didn't talk to each other and they were sworn enemies, they liked each other. And so they went and they met the next day and they talked. And the exact wording from the woman who runs Mom Demand Action is like, we're 80% on the same page. You can figure out the 20%, but that 80% they only realized when they liked each other, when they were equalized, that one wasn't smarter, one wasn't dumb, one wasn't misinformed. one was, They're like, oh, that's a good person sitting next to me. When she talked, I think it came from a good place. I didn't agree with the word coming out of her mouth, but when she talked, I liked her. That came from being in person. And I think that's really a key of connection is the physical being in person because so much of our operating system is nonverbal. It's the being next to someone. It was interesting. We just did um, Connect Effect at Central Lakes College and the president of the college came to me and said, you won't believe what happened. The student leaders came to my office to use the conference room um, to meet in person. And she's like, they were elected in September and they have never met in person. They met through Zoom, even though they're all on campus. And they said they went to Connect Effect and they see it differently. They want to try it differently because they know that so much of now information and sort of it comes from being in person. So they're going to try it. And I think that's sort of the ease of Zoom, the ease of our screen is taking that 93% away. And that's really that, that equalization is inherent when we're around another human being. It's so easy for me to ghost you and to unfriend you. But if you're in person right next to me, it's really hard to do it. So encouraging people to be in those physical spaces together is really, really key to creating that sense of connection and community again. Yeah. You shared so many nuggets. I just, uh, I've, that has my my brain swimming in all kinds of places. And, you know, thinking about this through the context of the places and spaces where we spend a lot of our time with leadership education and working with college students and, you know, through our uh, learnernized consulting practices and what, and what have you, it's it's always working with communities and organizations and individuals that, you know, have a passion for whatever it is, you know, whatever context that they're involved in, but also they, for some reason, have uh, accessed and decided to spend some time working on their self-development and leadership development. And in order for us to curate that we have to create these safe spaces. We are so methodical and intentional. We shared some of this, Lauren and I, on the, the introduction episode for, for this uh, season slash semester about how we do that during our first days of classes. And um, you also had me thinking about, uh, Lauren, about Priya Parker's book uh, on gathering and how she talks so mm-hmm. much about being purposeful and intentional. She, she's got an acronym too. It's not coming to me, but you know, so much about like, okay, like it's a transformative experience. You need to bring people through this transformational portal of, and, you know, in theatrics or, you know, in like the theater and Broadway, she uses some examples about just like, as you get off, you know, you're walking on on Broadway Ave, you come into the theater and there's some type of uh, channel or or hallway that you walk through that's decorated a certain way that changes your mindset, right? Now you're in this different experience. and And it's interesting that through your background, through your experience, your talents, in the entertainment industry, that's what they do, right? They create yeah. transformative experiences and the theatrics and the, the soundstage and the set behind that. And then that brings everybody into this shared experience. And your point about these opening equalization questions that you asked that build community you had me thinking about, I think this was when one of Malcolm Gladwell's books, he talks about this research he came across around contempt and that, you know, people not being better than, and that they had some, some, uh, some psychologists had studied, he'd done some qualitative research, video interviewing a bunch of married couples. And those that lasted more than like a year or two beyond this research, the absolute statistically significant factor was what they, they asked them to like talk about a recent dinner that they went out to or something like very, very vague. But they, one of the things that they would always find in these conversations was marriages that lasted. There was not any essence of like contempt, but there were in these, it might've been like, talk about a recent argument you had. Um, but this contempt showed up in some of the others that didn't, these marriages almost always didn't last after a couple of years because there were things said like, well, I would never do it that way, or I can't believe you did that, or, you know, things that are basically like, well, I'm a better person than you, your decision, you know, I wouldn't do this, and just some type of power dynamic that existed. And so as soon as you walk in with this idea that I'm better than you, you're less than me, what have you, you're not able to collaborate. 
right? It's it's yes. it's a competitive spirit. When I think about some of like the business ethics and some of the case studies we have about like collaboration versus versus competition, leading us to this like listening versus waiting to speak, and we don't feel connected because of those those types of things. And you you mentioned on your um, you, you were alluding to this with the the epic system and the um, I remember watching your the video you have on your Connect Effect website about how students sometimes feel disconnected. And how by bringing folks into these safe spaces, they can share those human stories and create that those connections that you spoke to. I, mean, I think I think we are, and this is true of um, I find Western society in general is we we are very prone to lead with our achievements and our ego. You know, um, we go to a party and it's like, and this happens particularly. It's you know wherever I live in New York and LA and I've lived. It's like, what do you do? When people ask that question, it's like, where are you on the hierarchy? Because if someone said I'm a plumber, you'd be like, oh, then I'm I make more money than you. Like we're very, very prone to size people up. And the screens, this comparing is the thing of the screens. It's comparing who where am I in relationship to you? And so that equalization is so vital to feel connection because if I want to connect with you and I want you to feel that you can trust me, I, I don't want to feel the judgment. And if I, when we ask people, why are you afraid to talk students? And 99% say judgment. I'm worried about being judged, that using the wrong word, saying the wrong thing. Um, they're terrified. They're paralyzed by the judgment. And part of that comes from their real world experience. And part of that comes from looking at the screen where all we do is compare who we are, what we are, what we've achieved to what we're seeing on the screen. It's a constant comparison. Where am I in these 1000 videos I'm looking at a day? Um, but that equalization is, it's so funny because again, you had these two women who had were on complete opposite sides of, of the gun debate and they just were in physical proximity. So even though they didn't say a thing to each other, when one of them was talking about the fear of losing someone suddenly, she choked up and that moment of empathy was not anything that I had planned to talk about. It was just that human equalization. Someone sitting next to me is choked up so much. 93% kicks in and I'm empathic. So I really do think it was interesting after we did connect effect, we would ask people, you know, do you feel more comfortable, more able to connect to people? And we had about 285 participants, 93% said yes because they said, it's not as scary as I think it is in my mind that within 10 minutes, I was sitting next to these two strangers, which, which again, we do, you're sorry, you're in a pot of four. So you're with three strangers. Four is a very magical number for creating conversation. And I, within 10 minutes, I saw all these connections that we had in common that I never, ever, ever would have thought we did from looking at each other on the outside. And so really that ability to see, and part of that is, again, you're not the result of just now, 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 you have these thousands and thousands of days of lived experiences where I'm sure there are commonalities and connections and shared experiences. And focus on that before we talk about the issue of today, because that's all we end up doing because the screen is so fervent is we talk about what we just saw. But if you can step back from that and talk about where you've come from, there's much more intersections of connection there and much more potential for equalization. Just like you were saying about, you know, I grew up near the beach, such a simple thing is a great equalizer for a student who's looking at you and is like, oh, there's my teacher. Oh, she's obviously, you know, I remember growing up thinking, I saw a teacher of mine at the restaurant. I'm like, you eat? Like, what? Like, you you go out? You're, <laughs> but you're a teacher. Like, and I never, never saw them humanized. And now I think that ability to see the humanity on each other is, in a world of depersonalization from screens is incredibly important. You know, it's it's funny that that's your ending comment because I, I think about, like, I don't go out, I live near Philadelphia. I don't go out in Philadelphia because when I go out, I see my students and I'm <laughs> able to cut up, you know, and be Lauren or Lolo, not Miss Lauren or Professor Bullock. So, but to your point, you're right. Sometimes it, I'll see, like, I had a student who was working the elevator in an Eagles game and I get on and he's like, Miss Lauren. And in my head, I'm laughing because I'm like, we're in, we're at this game. Like it's a Sunday night, the place is packed. And here he is, it's still in this, this mindset of, of college. And he's wanting to talk to me about like class things. And I'm just like, in my head, I'm like, this is not in my little clear fanny pack, you know, but Hey, well, whatever you want to talk about, you got it. No, for the safety of all your students, you all need to go home, plug yourselves into a wall, into an oxygen chamber, and not engage in the real world so you can stay in that pristine <laughs> oh, space. No, no, no. <laughs> I also, though, I love it because I'm always in class telling them, nope, go get jobs. I need y'all. I need that social security money towards the end of my career. Like, I need y'all to make sure it's there. And mm -hmm. they laugh. 
me. I need a food. But, but, but what you were saying reminds me of um, immunity to change, meaning it's a model that's applied where they talk about you have these things you do that you feel like protect you and, and they feel comforting because you've always had them and they, you feel like they've always protected you. However, once you, one, surface what the real issue is, you find that it's something else that you're, you're protecting yourself from. But then two, you're not seeing all of the other issues that are being caused from the things that you're doing. And so it walks you through these steps of surfacing those things that you feel like are protecting you and identifying how you're being harmed. And it feels like in these spaces, you're doing that with like a whole room full of folks really talking about, first you talk about what connects you, but then once you get to those challenging issues, it's, it's setting folks up so they can have a deeper conversation about what the real challenge is or what their present day, like what, what their living experience is. Like you, you mentioned some of like the politicians, it's like, that's wonderful that you're following those talking points, but also are those talking points actually affecting you in real life? Um, it reminds me of a guest speaker I went to. And the first question they said was, how many cups of coffee do you think adults drink? And everybody answered the question. And then he asked, how many cups of coffee do you drink? And in the first response, people said they think people drunk like six cups of coffee a day. And then in the second response, when they said the three cups, it was, well, you're all adults and you only drank three cups. So it's talking about misperception and, and how we feel. And so it feels like it's, you know, an hour, 90 minutes, two hours of kind of surfacing some of that. The second thing, as we're talking about gathering and purpose, because in Priya's book, that's a lot of what it is. It's how are you being very clear about what people should be doing in these spaces? It reminded me of a, a tough conversation that I had to have. So I had a colleague who wanted us to, to meet and we were meeting and the meetings were taking like 90 minutes like a complete waste of time. And I got very frustrated because I'm a very timed person. Like I have a very clear schedule. And so what I eventually learned was he wanted to build community, but he was doing it under this guise of productivity. And so when he finally surfaced that he wanted to build community after I'd been making all these recommendations, I was just like, you could have just said that in the beginning, like you just wanted to gather together to talk. Like you could have just led with that. And because I was getting all upset because I was like, I'm trying to make these meetings produ productive and they're not in any way. Um, the other thing I realized was you like, you can't force that connection on me either. Like that's not how I connect with people. So like shaming me for not attending these meetings or trying to force me to attend these meetings because you want to connect that way isn't the space I'm comfortable with. So it gave me some language to have that conversation. But to your point, I felt like it really was like a courageous step. And I almost asked for permission ahead of time. I was like, look, I'm not going to these meetings. And the person was like, oh, okay. Like to another person, they were like, oh, mm -hmm. okay. But to your point, I felt like it was this big buildup. And in reality, I could have just said like that. I don't want to, like, I want to attend these meetings for productivity, not for community. I build community in other ways. Y'all go ahead and have fun. You don't need me there. Um, and, and, but I feel like it was so hard in that moment to say that. And once I said it, it was fine and we could move forward. You know, I, I think so many times when we gather, it's one of the one of the first things we do in Connect Effect is we call it intent connect. That what is your intention for this space? And because if you change what you're looking for, it'll change what you see. That if you are looking to see confirmation of the worst of the other side, you'll find it. If you're looking to be proven right, you'll find it. If you're looking to connect, you'll find it. And so one of the first things we do is we say like, what is your intention for being here? If you just want to get through the next 60 minutes, like maybe this isn't for you. You know, we're, we're not, you're not obligated to be here. And so we really are very, very clear that there's an intention behind this. Um, and it really is to connect and that's it. And that and if you're looking for that, you'll find it. And I think so often I'll go into either conferences or breakout groups or whatever. And I'm like, is this to connect or is this a soapbox for you? You know, I really do feel like that comes through very, very clearly. And I think young people are very aware of that because they have so little control over their lives that they're so used to walking into a space. And in this space, you have to behave this way. And in this space, you have to do this. And what I like about what we do is, again, we're not in the classroom. Although when we do it, we end up, what I love is going to the classrooms afterwards, after they've experienced it and then breaking it down with them. We do that no matter where we go. Um, but what is your intention for this space? 
And a lot of that is set up by the way we greet them, the way they're welcomed to the room, the way that they sit down, that we're very clear, like your whole point here is to sit back and allow the connections to emerge, that this isn't something that you're going to have to actively work on. I absolutely believe in the concept of safe spaces. We very clearly say this, we're not here to be safe. We're here for you to enjoy connection. Because I think that idea of safe spaces makes people either A, very guarded, or very much leaning into their own sense of fragility, which, you know, we can unpack that separately. But for connect effect, we're like, you will discuss some interesting things. You'll discuss some things that are difficult. They won't feel difficult because by the nature of the emotional shift we'll create, the big, big shift we have when people leave Connect Effect is no longer let me regurgitate what I know, but what do I not know? Like that's the prime of me learning about you is not me trying to get it right. Your pronouns, your race, your is just tell, what do I not know about you is the best priming. We asked people at this, this, uh, uh, this um, event we went to, you know, again, it's 285 people. Do you think this would be useful to bridge divides, to have this be first? Sort of, we, we call it, when we pitch to people, we say we're step zero. You want to have a clarity conversation about race, about guns, whatever, we're step zero. We will set up people, prime them. 97% said this would. I mean, we. I said I'd be happy with anything over 75. 97% said if this came first, we could discuss divides much more easily. Because the first thing we do is we break your relationship with the phone. Because none of us are in the Middle East right now. Everything we are learning is an edit. Some edits go down one side, edits go the other. And the and behind every edit, having spent 20 years in the, in the screen world in Hollywood, behind every edit, there is an intention. Always. No one just goes into an edit bay and says, I just, I'm going to make, there's an intention. And now the intention almost always is the same. More likes. Whether it's liberal, whether it's conservative, I'm just editing this for more likes. And so we're not getting balanced objective truth. We're getting a highly curated sense of what the reality is. And so we really, when people go through it, there is this shift of, I can't trust the screen. We have this whole thing we do in Connect Effect where we, we say that the screen is like being a cyclops. Why do we have two eyes that do the exact same thing, not even an inch apart, is depth. You cannot see depth without two eyes. And we, we have this thing where we have two swizzle sticks and we have them sort of pull them apart and then bring them together, the little, little points touching. We have them do it a few times quickly and then we have them close one eye and they, they, they pass each other and they all look drunk. They can't seem to get these two points. And I'm like, that's why you have two eyes. Your screen is one eye. You are seeing no depth. And we say, there's a very simple test to know if you're looking at the world as a cyclops. If you are 100% sure, you are 100% right. And the other side is 100% wrong. 100% of the time, you are looking at the world as a cyclops and you have no depth. You must go and find another perspective to find, to see anything with depth. And so really that, that, that breaking of the relationship and the reliance on the screen world is step one of Connect Effect. Because no matter what we're talking about, you know, none of us are in those spaces where we're getting this news coming at us and current events. And so edits are completely, I, I, I have two WhatsApp groups I was sent to Muslim to, to Jewish schools most of my life. And so most of my best friends are Jewish. And so I have my my WhatsApp group with my Jewish friends and I have my WhatsApp group with my Muslim friends and constantly blowing up with different images, edits, shocking things that neither is seeing. And so both sides are two-dimensional. And the only way to see it with depth is to see both. And that, if you don't get it from your phone, it's meeting someone, trusting them, equalizing with them and saying, what are you seeing that I'm not seeing? Not let me tell you what I already know. What are you seeing that I am not seeing? And that's how people leave Connect Effect is. I know now that I'm walking through the world as a cyclops if I leave my phone. So let me get another perspective to see things with depth. And again, uh, the final step of Epic is collaboration. You want to solve stuff rather than just fight about stuff? That's collaboration. Yeah. No, again, just love all these nuggets that you're dropping because so much of the responsibility of leadership educators is to facilitate these tough conversations or basically, you know, any conversations, right? I mean, we are, our, our uh, signature pedagogy, the instructional strategy we use most often in leadership development is discussion. And as leadership educators, again, it's, it's how do we skillfully intervene 
with our students, with the individuals that were responsible for, for cultivating, for, for facilitating these conversations and just love the strategies and metaphors that you've shared and these kind of little learning activities for cultivating connections and classrooms and communities and, and within organizations and thinking about dialogue and promoting co-inquiry and, and all these things that we socially construct together, these shared meaning and these hopefully moving towards some type of positive change and and a connection. Uh, I, I want to make sure that we we ask you um, about some of the things you're working on and some of your current and, and future projects. So, you know, what are some of those things as you think about the work that you're currently immersed in, some, you know, future projects or initiatives you're excited about? How do they align with your mission to, to transform perspectives and facilitate meaningful, connected conversations? My, my, all of what I do now, I have very, very few projects that are in Hollywood right now, because I think there's still this need to build projects on conflict. And I'm like, um, the world is burning. Do we really need more conflict? Like you can smell the smoke, people. We really do we do we need more conflict? So I mean and again, Hollywood does what it does and it does it well, but it's 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 I think that there's saturation of conflict. My my whole thing with Connect Effect is that that's now my my full work is that there are three phases to Connect Effect. The first is delivered, that we're going to existing communities that need a revitalization of connections. So whether it's a campus, whether it's faculty, we're going now to do um, all the faculty and staff on a campus because they're having a hard time connecting. Where private companies we go to, which are saying, come back to the office, but no one knows anyone. No one has any emotional real estate with anyone. Um, conferences, you know, people go and they'll talk to who they know or whether they'll be down their phone. And so we come in as day one beginning, like how do you introduce people in a new way so they can go to the conference and maximize collaboration and, and not just spend time with the people they know. So step one is delivered. Step two is hosted. That when we people experience connection, we ask them in the survey, if there was a connect effect location dedicated to this kind of connection that you just experienced, that you could drop in anytime you felt lonely, anytime you want to discuss ideas, would you use it? And 82% of people said yes, because if you are isolated, if you are lonely, and I'm thinking about all these students who are sitting in front of their screen and they're like, I do feel lonely. I know that. Where are you going to go? Like, where are you going to go? Because you go to Starbucks, everyone's on their phone. You go to the bar, everyone's on their phone. Or there's drinking, which has its own thing. Like, where could you go? And I, I pitched a woman who is one of the heads of mental health in Florida. And she started to cry. And she's like, this is it. Because most of my students are not mentally ill. They're just really, really lonely. And my only options are to refer them to therapy or group therapy where they'll sit in a fluorescently lit room, which again has its valid validity, but I don't think all these people are mentally ill so much as lonely and they need an active mechanism to connect. The thing we say about Connect Effect is all, all the awkwardness of social introductions is outsourced to us. We introduce people. We, we actively connect people because if you create these spaces where they're designed structurally for connection, people are still not going to introduce themselves unless you have a proactive mechanism. So phase two is hosted that ideally connected to commercial real estate malls, spaces that have a record high vacancy of 10 to 12%. We're creating a new foothold that we are actively connecting people and then they can go enjoy the food court or the movie theater. But what Connect Effect really does beautifully that I love is it connects across generations. So you end up because people walk in and they're randomly assigned the people they're going to sit with, you have a 20 year old next to a 70 year old. And if they're equalized in the right way, they can see each other, they become amazing resources to each other. That for an aging person to have connection prevents all sorts of physical health problems. For a younger person, it's all sort of mental health problems. So that intergenerational connection is something we really love at these hosted facilities. So the idea is again, for more and more locations at malls or commercial real estate where people can drop in, it's everything in Connect Effect is primary colors. Very intentionally, you put people in primary colors, it's a very specific response. We're not in primary colors after the age of six. So. There's brightly colored spaces with good music and people are actively connected in this conversation. So that's phase two is hosted. Phase three is broadcast. We're at these locations is a studio. And so what you do is you connect an audience every day of the week and then you tape a show with an audience together. Game shows, talk shows, information shows. But I grew up in an era where audiences on talk shows would talk to each other. And now that never happens. You know, you'd have real people in the audience talking and a lot of connection. Why Oprah in early days was so powerful is because real people would would share things they wouldn't normally share. Now, part of that was Oprah and part of that was the producing team that would create an environment. By the time the person got up to speak, they felt comfortable. That's what we do. And so phase three is broadcast that you have in these centers. And we're opening up more and more locations as you soak up 
neighborhoods that have stopped talking, communities that have stopped talking, families that have stopped talking, you connect them. And then we film beautifully shot shows that are broadcast. It's all on YouTube. It's not a paid third party where you start seeing people looking like you, sounding like you, talking about issues relevant to you. Right now, neighbors in Wisconsin are not talking because of book bans in Florida. Whereas if you can create civic engagement, then you have people talking about issues and they can actually solve things. So the real big swing here is to revitalize connection and community and and create a sense of civic engagement that is local. That we have 15 of these Connect Effect, ideally in time, 15 of these Connect Effect micro studios and each one is broadcasting their own slate of shows. So people in Minnesota are looking to people in Minnesota talking about family leave in Minnesota and just getting people to stop paying attention to what I call as the big circus, which is DC. You know, it's interesting in Connect Effect, we sh- I share, I had a conversation with these three very powerful people and I asked them looking in the eye, does an angry population make you more money? It means you, the person I'm looking at, and I'll tell everyone in the world your answers, but I'll give you multiple choice. A, yes, B, no, C, it's more complicated than that. And you asked the lobbyist and she said without a hesitation, A, and then she added, we can't allow the illusion of collaboration to get out because that doesn't fire up the donors and donors have to be fired up. Because She said there is collaboration going on, but if there's collaboration, we make sure cameras are never there. And so this big show is designed to divide and raise money in the division. And so trying to get people to focus more civically, I know you as my neighbor. Together, if we like each other, we're connected to each other, we can solve things that are relevant to us. You know, COVID was very different in very different parts of the world, depending on how closely you were densely populated, but everyone got a one size fit all. And so it really is trying to get people to, to focus more locally. And so reinventing the community center as an entertainment venue is what we're trying to do. Because again, there is a space for safe spaces. I don't want people walking to Connect Effect and saying it's gonna be safe. I want them to say, that was fun because human connection is fun. When you have great connecting conversations, that's the stuff that makes us feel wonderful and alive. We asked, would you recommend Connect Effect to others after they finished it? 99% said yes. I was shocked. All but three of 285 people said yes, because although they had a shift in perspective, they saw, they enjoyed the experience. And the way you get people to come back is if they enjoy it. And that's what we want is people to not think of connection as work, something that's hard to do, but it is easy. It can be effortless and it can be fun because that is actually one of the most enjoyable things in the world is when you connect with people that you don't know and you have these deep conversations. Um, All this research coming up from Harvard that social fitness is as important as physical fitness and health and longevity, but not just talking to people you know, actively meeting new people is the most important part of social fitness. And there's nowhere to do that. We're all siloed. We live around thousands of people we'll never meet. So that's the big swing is to use Connect Effect, you know, now delivered, then hosted, then broadcast to revitalize a sense of community again in, in, in America and ideally beyond. But that's the big swing because that's the foundation of so many of our problems, the polarization and isolation and addiction and comes from this isolation and isolation from screens. It sounds like such meaningful work. Makes sense why you're so passionate about it. Like you can feel and hear your energy and excitement about making these changes and almost like the the pride in knowing that you're measuring or or you're getting or slightly moving that needle in all of these spaces. You can you can feel it. It's palpable in, in how you're sharing. Um, is there anything else that you want us to know before we close out our episode today? No, I think it's just that it works. And I think you know, I, I really want to honor the fact that I think university higher education faculty, staff are in a very tricky position. Um, and, and being someone who's not in that, I feel more comfortable saying it than, than I think a lot of people in it, is that, you know, you do want to create these amazing experiences, but you also have this weird world of feedback constantly coming that I know I talk to professors, and specifically when I just left, and they're like, a lot of the things you said, I couldn't say. Because it can be, and that's, and really it's very sad and very frustrating to see these great educators who can't say what they really want to say. And so I do think that there's, there's more validity now in something that connect effect. It's not in the classroom. That's this co-curricular exercise that can be expanded upon in the classroom. And we do have learning modules and we do engage in conversations afterwards, but it really is a, we call it a hard reset. You know, in your computer phrase, you control, alt, delete. 
We control all delete the humanity of people when they're in the room. And that lasts long beyond when we're gone. I mean, Sheldon, I was there two years ago. And he's like, people are still doing things differently. And so I do think there's a need, specifically in higher education, to be able to bring in something else to do some of that heavy lifting and then allowing the classrooms to maximize it. Because it's, it's a very tricky position that I think faculty and administration are in right now, where you have this student but you also have this weird that it's a customer and the higher up is saying like, you know, we have to keep the customer happy. We have to keep it. It's a business. And I think that's very hard to do. And so in partnership, we found that it's really an amazing collaboration to have us come in to work with the faculty, to have these conversations and to do this reset and then send them back to the classroom where things are different and they feel differently. You know, we ask, do you feel more hopeful? 96% said they feel more hopeful about the world. That's a shocking shift in 60 minutes. Um, and so really it is it is designed not just to create a temporary shift, but a permanent shift, but that, that permanent shift is kept up by the work they do once we leave. Um, and one of the things we do is we have these, when we leave, we have the people that we train locally, we have these chatty hours so that every two weeks or every four weeks after we leave, there are these device-free chatty hours they can go to, to drop it on the same connection. They are actively introduced literally introductions and the way we introduce the questions we ask are much more humanizing and fun than just like, what are you doing? What are you studying? And so once we go and they feel that connection and they feel more hopeful and they feel more able to connect, they, there's a space on campus that they can keep dropping into. And if it's the same people, they're great. If not, they're new people. Great. Because we'll still actively connect you. And so I think that's part of, of shifting the tide of these screens, these damn screens is it's like a muscle. The more you do it, the more you can do it, the more less the less fearful you are about doing it. Um, and so it's not just a temporary fix. It is designed to be part of a bigger solution of offering that kind of connection that is effortless, that is proactive, that is experiential, um, and that is enjoyable because that's what connection is. It's the most fun thing if it's done in a way that doesn't feel like it's heavy lifting. Thank you so much. You've shared so many just amazing points. Like I took a full page of notes and, and now I, I'm thinking about the centered question of like always, how are we creating, you know, meaningful connection in class? Um, I'll share really quickly. Yeah. I, I, I took a teaching in higher ed certificate and I audited the two classes as a part of my doctoral work. And one of the things that came out was nobody was intentionally talking about like faculty student interaction and how you meaningfully connect. And so I think it was alluded to, but there was never any explicit conversation. And so to me, as someone who's steeped in that, I'm like, you know, we're missing an opportunity to talk deeply about this and be explicit about this in a way that's meaningful. So I'll just share, I just thought I'd share that. Um, and then just end with thanking you so much for joining us today. Uh, we appreciate your time and your insight and wish you the best of luck as you continue traveling to campuses and, and building locations and centers um, that are designed to work on improving connection and, and, and civility within our space. Thank you. And if, and if people are listening and, and want to find out more, just, just email. It's Riaz, R-I-A-Z, Riaz at connecteffect.us. Um, because the, we designed it to be experienced. And so really we're in a phase now of we've spent seven years perfecting it, every sound cue. So now we want it to be used and we want it to get out to as many students as possible. And based on the data we just got, it was essential health. Brought, it's the first time we've been brought in by a health system saying we're going to use a non-traditional approach to the to the epidemic of isolation and polarization. So we'll try something that's you know a little different. And the data was was unbelievable. So it, it, we really would love to get out there in front of more campuses and more students and more faculty. Um, a lot of, most of our sessions were a mix of students and faculty and everything was designed to be entirely appropriate that you could be sitting with your student, your direct boss, and it, nothing is, is inappropriate in terms of the, the equalization. And so it really is nice to see students and administrators go through this side by side with faculty, with, with students, because again, to what you said, that's an important relationship. Um, and I think that it's a very unique uh, opportunity to be able to deepen those relationships outside of the classroom. Awesome. Yeah, we will definitely put that uh, link in the show notes as well. Thank you again, Reyes. Have a great one. Thank you. Leadership educators who may have a little trouble coming up with creative learning activities to further their course and program learning outcomes are now able to meet with Dan or me 
to discuss the process they use to ensure engaged and inclusive learning environments. Or if you're an academic leader looking for an external reviewer, Dan brings years of experience in education evaluating leadership programs. Contact us via LinkedIn today. Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page. And find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura JB. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at theleadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators the Association of Leadership Educators, and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org.